Anybody, uh, I suppose, especially in these recent days, could recognize that uh, we have some serious issues and problems uh, in our world, and more particularly in our nation. Uh, Something clearly is broken and has been broken. But let me remind you, something has been broken for a long time. Nothing just popped out of nowhere in the past few months. We, uh, as, as God's creatures, we have been dealing with brokenness from the beginning. The Bible reminds us in Jeremiah 17, 9, these won't be on the screen, but just kind of as I uh, set up what I believe the Lord has given me to share this morning Jeremiah in 17.9 reminds us that the heart, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? You see, the Word of God diagnoses the human condition very clearly. And it's not a pretty picture. It's a grim picture. It is a sobering picture. Jesus, when he was confronted by some religious leaders who were questioning why the disciples did not ceremonially wash their hands. Uh, He was confronted with them questioning his commitment to God. And Jesus said in Matthew 15, he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. You can be religious and have a profession without possession. And Jesus went on to say that what is what comes out of the mouth that proceeds from the heart that defiles a person. We all clearly admit that change needs to take place. The problem is, are we changing and addressing the symptoms or are we allowing the Word of God to give us the proper diagnosis of the root of that brokenness, the root of that problem? The Bible is clear in that it says that we must have a change of heart. That does that speaks to our uh, our human nature that we are all born with, our will, our affections, our thinking, our inclinations. Some are looking for help on Capitol Hill, but let me suggest this morning, while you're in a Christian church with a Christian pastor singing Christian songs with a Bible that exalts Jesus Christ, that our solution to our issues is not Capitol Hill, but Calvary's Hill. It is the cross. Our hope must be in the cross and not Congress, and our salvation must be in the Savior, Jesus Christ, and not a president or a king. We have one hope, and that's in Christ and Christ alone. And so the Bible gives this picture that we must be reconciled, we who are broken, broken humanity, must be reconciled to God. We have a broken, severe gulf, a separation, the Bible pictures and is clear, and we must be and allow the God who makes all things new to allow him to make new the human heart. We don't need, as you know, if you're in Grace Church, you know some of this terminology, we don't need reformation of the heart. We need a transformation of the heart. We don't need rehabilitation. We need transformation. And the Word of God paints that picture very clear. And so this morning, 
If you turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 15, I want to talk about reconciliation, the God who makes all things new. Reconciliation, the God who makes all things new. And I'm going to forego for time reading the entire text, and we'll walk through it, read it as we walk through it and expound it this morning. And I believe it's a timely word, because instead of all the messages that we are literally drowning in, this is what's so important about gathering together as God's people together and to calibrate our minds and our hearts and our thinking to the truth of God's Word. Because it's so easy to get sucked in, and before you know it, you're having a perspective that is clouded, and you begin to wonder, what is, what is happening? What is true? And it's good to go back and recalibrate ourselves to the Word of God if you're a follower of Christ to make sure that our perspective reflects that which the Word of God gives us. And so this morning we're going to look at reconciliation from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. But before we do that, let's bow in prayer one more time. Our gracious Father, we are grateful for this Word that is a sure standard in unsettled times when our minds and hearts and culture and nation and world is all seemingly the rivets are popping off and it's coming unglued. Lord, it isn't just now happening. Lord, it has been coming unglued from the moment that our first father and mother decided that they would live a life apart from your will. And so I pray that today, as we are all living in this time, in this society, in this community, Lord, that you would help us by your Holy Spirit to reset our minds on things above and not on things of the earth, that we will focus our hearts and minds on the surety of the Word of God. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be that which is pleasing in your sight, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Paul is writing to, this is a second letter, he's writing to the church at Corinth, thus the Corinthians. And the city of Corinth was a non-Jewish, it was a Gentile, Roman, very much a commercial center, and it was multicultural, it was multiracial, racial. Uh, it was multi-ethnic. And these were folks that he was writing to this church who had come under the lordship of Christ from their former paganism, their former idolatrous worship. And so Paul, in this passage, in verses 14 through 21, is a, is a tremendous, um, packed-filled, I, I like the word the old Puritans would say, pregnant with truth concerning how God has provided reconciliation through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this morning, I want you to notice with me three truths in our, in our text today. Notice, first of all, in how we are engaged in this. Notice, first of all, you know, you know when a pastor puts his watch down, you know what that means, don't you? Absolutely nothing. But today, it will mean something, all right? All right. Notice, first of all, that we as believers, and I'm talking to believers, we participate through Christ in the miracle of reconciliation through the Lord Jesus Christ. We participate 
in the miracle of reconciliation through Christ. And I trust that you are following in your Bibles and making use of this time to open the Word of God. When a person is reconciled to God, they are made new in Christ, reconciled. And just to make sure we have some clarity, reconciliation, if you uh, have a checkbook, and some of us still do have checkbooks, or maybe your parents uh, have checkbooks, but you would get a bank statement and if I know accountants and our bookkeeper here that very, and our elder of finance all very much uh, relevant in making sure the bank statement and making sure that the balance agrees. But if your balance doesn't agree with your records, there's a problem. There has to be reconciliation. And the only way to get reconciliation is to find out, if you're looking at the ledger, is to find out where the problem is. You can't just throw your hands up and do like maybe I would do and say, oh, we're short five bucks. Here, here's five bucks. Let's even out and let's move on. Well, that, that's abhorrent to a bookkeeper, all right? That's why I'm not a bookkeeper. Uh, when bank balances don't match, again, we don't just give up. We work to find the error to fix it, to fix the problem. Jesus Christ, listen to me, is our fix to the error of sin. He came to reconcile us to God. He lived 33 years to fulfill all righteousness and to bring us into balance with God's righteousness. He did this for us because we cannot, could not do this for ourselves. Jesus did that. And so here in verses 14 through 17... As we talk about, look at the miracle of reconciliation, look at verse 14, and we see that being reconciled to God gives the believer a new passion. Verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us. For the love of Christ controls us. Jesus is the controlling factor now. Jesus Christ empowers us, controls us to live not for ourselves, but for for him, myself, under the lordship of Christ, now that I am reconciled, now comes under the obedience and gladly with joy yields to Christ. But also being reconciled to God, verse 15, gives us a new priority. And he died, Christ died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for who? but for him. See, that was the pattern, living for ourselves. We are naturally inclined to have the party for me, myself, and I. We, we like living for ourselves, but now, because of this being made new, that we are reconciled through Christ. Jesus Christ now has changed the way we live. You see, Jesus is not interested in being yours or anybody's co-pilot. He's not the VP. He's not the undersecretary. Jesus Christ is our new priority. If you've been in studying with Colossians, Colossians 1.18, that in all things, Christ must have preeminence. That means first place. And, you know, I love the... You've probably heard this before. C.T. Studd was a British missionary to China. 
And he wrote this that I have in my Bible, only one life will soon be passed, only what is done for Christ will last, and when I am dying, how happy I'll be if the lamp of my life has been burned out for thee. You see, we have a new way of living under this new lordship and priority as men and women who have been reconciled through Christ. But also, it's not just a new way of living, but it's a new way of thinking. Verse 16, being reconciled to God gives us a new perspective. That's why we are here taking time to labor under the word of God. Verse 16, from now on, from now on, he's writing to believers who have this new relationship. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Now, that's a little awkward. Look at the New Living Translation. I think I might have it on the screen, verse 16. Same verse, but the New Living Translation says, so we have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. This is the product of reconciliation, of being new in Christ. We have stopped judging and evaluating others from the mere human point of view. At one time, he says, Paul is speaking, at one time he said, I thought of Christ when I looked at Jesus. It was from my point of view, what I knew. He said, but how differently we know him now. How differently, Paul says, I think of Jesus. I, I thought of him as just, uh, you know, a rebel violating the law of God. He said, because that was my old self. That was my old judgment. He said, but this newness, this reconciliation that has come into my life, how my perspective has changed. It should be the change of the believer. It should change our thinking. If we have what the Bible says, 1 Corinthians 2.16, that we have the mind of Christ. Bitterness, anger, envy, strife is not in the mind of Christ. And if we have the mind of Christ and we have been made one with him, reconciled, then our minds should reflect this new relationship. Of course, we're looking at Colossians on Wednesday Paul said in Colossians 3, we'll probably look at this even next, this coming week. Notice what he says here, and this is the New Living Translation. I'm not sure if I have it. Colossians 3, put on your new nature. Put on your new nature. Notice that's an action we do, put on. You put on clothes today, and we appreciate that. I just, let me just go on record and say we are for that here, okay? We put on the new nature and be renewed, and I love this because I love that the fact that Paul especially, but others admit they're still learning. Put on the new nature and be renewed as you, what? Learn to know your creator and become like him. In this new life, again, this complements what he's saying here in 1 Corinthians 5. In this new life, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free, black, white, Asian, Hispanic, you name it. You put it in whatever you need to put in. Christ is all that matters, 
and he lives in all of us, speaking of believers. Being reconciled to God also gives us, according to verse 17, new possibilities. 2 Corinthians 5, our passage, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they are what? They're a new creation, a new, literally, a new species of being, the Greek implies. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That's the miracle of this reconciliation that as believers, as Christians, we have. But there's a second observation in our passage not just the miracle of reconciliation, but notice, secondly, we, were, we, the believers, the church, the called out ones, we, we proclaim. We don't just participate, but now we proclaim the message of reconciliation to all. It's giving us some responsibility concerning this newness in Christ, this reconciliation. As I said earlier, the Bible The diagnosis is clear on the universal, without exception, condition of humanity. We have fallen and we can't get up. Hello? That's the condition. And that's why the Word of God puts it in our court that this is a message of what Christ has done that we are responsible to proclaim. Sin, Satan, our fallen nature have introduced this wedge, this division, this separation. As I said, we are born into this condition. We are all separated from our Creator. Sin divides. Sin separates. Sin devours. Romans 6.23 says that all have what? Sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Sin, in the Greek, means to miss the mark. To miss the mark. We have fallen short. I always, again, think of when my kids were little and we'd go to wherever, amusement park or rides, and invariably there'd be some ride they just weren't tall enough to get on, old enough, and they would have some, you know, Yogi Bear. Oh, I shouldn't say I live in Florida. Mickey Mouse or whatever, you know. And it says you have to be this tall. And often they fell short of the standard. The Bible says that we all together have fallen short. But the good news is, yes, grace. Notice with me as we look at verse 18 and how we proclaim. What do we proclaim? What's the content? Well, we proclaim the fact that God is the author of this reconciliation. Verse 18, what does he say? All this, all what? This newness, this new creation, all this is from God who, what? Through Christ reconciled, him to, reconciled us to himself. All of this is from God. Everything begins with God. God took the initiative. God took the initiative. God sought those who were not seeking him. God did this. God came in Christ looking for you, looking for me to reconcile us. God's sovereign grace took the initiative, not because somehow we did something to earn his attention, earn his infections. In fact, the picture of the Bible is very clear. We lived lives, 
and we're born into lives. As traitors, R.C. Sproul, Sproul calls it cosmic treason. We are, the Bible uses pictures like that we are called the enemies of God. It's hard to sometimes think of yourself as an enemy of God. But God, think about it, for God so loved these enemies that he sent his one and only begotten son. That whosoever, are you the whosoever? I'm grateful for the whosoever. Would believe in him should not die but have eternal life. And see, notice also verse 19 that this was something that not only is God the author, but Christ is the agent of this reconciliation. It's Christ who provides the way, the way, the truth, and the life. He says in verse 19 that it is in Christ. It's in Christ that he has done this. The apostles got the memo early on when they said in Acts 4.12 that there is no other name by which we can be redeemed except the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We live in a culture that does not like that concept of the exclusivity that it's Christ and Christ alone. But the Word of God is not interested in polling data from the culture. And notice what it says there in that verse, what he provided, that in Christ he was reconciling the world to himself and you understand, he's, this is not teaching a universalism. That's of the world without distinction, beyond, not racial distinction, not ethnic distinction. Christian church has never taught universalism. But he says, not counting, the ESV says, not counting their trespasses against them. Your version might say imputing. It's, again, that's a bookkeeping term. It means that God is not keeping track or entering into the record our sin. Praise God. That's a good spot to say amen. amen. Praise God he's not doing that. Instead of logging our sins and failures, that's what the law did. God throws out the ledger altogether. To complement this passage again, Colossians 2, 13 and 14 says that God has forgiven you all of your trespasses, all of your sins, having wiped out. You know what a whiteboard is, right? And you write on it, and then when you want to reuse it, you, do, you what? You wipe it. That's the picture of the Greek. He has wiped it clean. He has wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us. That's the demands of the law that Jesus took, which was against us, contrary to us. And look at this. And he has taken it out of the way, having what? Nailed it to the cross. I know they had the name of the king of kings in three different languages because that was the, was it Greek, Aramaic, and Hebrew? That was the nature of the transient nature of the culture nailed above Jesus. But my friend, there was something else nailed there. Tim Campbell's sins were nailed to that cross. 
taken and out of the way. Not only is he the agent of our reconciliation, but it was only Christ alone who could accomplish this. That's what Paul says back in verse 21 of our passage. Some have said this is the greatest verse in the Bible. For he, God, made him, Christ, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Think about it. Jesus took what was ours, not your good works, not your Sunday school pins, not your record of giving to the SPCA, the, you know, helping dogs and cats. And that does nothing, my friend. And I'm pro-dog, so you know that, all right? So, but Jesus, what did he take? The only thing we brought to this salvation was our sin. He took our sin. He took what was ours, our sin, and gave us what was his, his righteousness. That's the great transaction of the gospel. That's the good news. That's what gospel means. That's why Paul could say in Romans 1.16, he says, I am not ashamed of this gospel. Christians in the modern church in America, we're ashamed of the gospel because we peddle everything but the gospel. We gimmick our way into church growth and thinking, this is how we're going to reach the masses, but all we are doing is shuffling chairs on the deck of the Titanic, my friends. That's all we're doing. Because why? It is the gospel and the gospel alone that targets the problem that we all have, and that's we need a new heart. And that's why Paul could say, I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. We proclaim this message of reconciliation. But notice, thirdly, we pursue. He's talking to believers. He's talking to the church. And by the way, just kind of a sidebar, if you know anything about the church at Corinth, it was a messed up joint. It was a messed up church. Somebody looking for a perfect church, you don't want to go to Corinth. But what's he doing? He's laying truth on them. Because I don't know about you, but I've lived long enough to know that even born-again people still have some mess in their life. That was free. I won't charge you for that. We are called to pursue the ministry of reconciliation. God has put that on us. That complements when Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. The gospel isn't separate. The gospel is the message of reconciliation of what God has done. That's the gospel. Why did God choose me? Why did God save me? He saved me for a purpose in order that I am a reconciler. Remember Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. You will, Jesus said, I don't give you peace the way the world gives you. 
See, the whole world, this culture, all they can do is put a band-aid on the problem. Jesus said, I give you peace, and my peace is not like the world's peace. Because my peace, Jesus said, it gets to the, the heart. And so, notice this in verse 19 again. We must become active reconcilers. And how do we do this? Because we possess the gospel of reconciliation. He is, it says, verse 19, entrusting to us, entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. I don't have it on the screen, but the New Living Translation says, and he has given us this wonderful message of reconciliation. You know, if you, if you around some believers, some Christians, you would be, you would be, you, you know, you wouldn't know that this is a wonderful message of what God has done. He has committed us to that. He has entrusted us to that. I remember when I first started driving a car, and my parents would give me the key, and there was this, of course, there was this laborious lecture of they are entrusting the car to me, right? Most of the time it worked out, but we'll save that for later. Well, we're not being entrusted with a car. He is entrusted to us. Think about that. Think about the most valuable thing that you own, and you entrust it to a former enemy who hated you. You're entrusting this message. I don't know. God, is that the best plan you could come up with? I don't know about riding in the sky and doing some creative things with talking plants, and that would be much more reliable, wouldn't it? But he has entrusted to us this message. You see, and here, look at verse 20. And I do have the new living because I just thought it. We not, only are, we not only possess this gospel of reconciliation, we, this is so, should be so sobering, we represent God. Verse 20, the new living, I think that's what, yeah. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God, look at this, God is making his appeal through us. God is making his appeal to us, through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, what? Come back to God. Do we need some of God's ambassadors in our world right now? Is this relevant? Is this at all relevant? Absolutely. Think about ambassadors. They spend most of their lives living in on foreign soil, they speak with authority on behalf of their country, their king, their president. They convey the ideals, the policies, the decisions. And listen, the reputation of their nation rests in their hands. That's how profound their role is as an ambassador for their nation. And also, for good or for bad, the country they represent is judged by the ambassador's words and actions. So I ask you, ask me, how are we doing representing 
the king? How are we doing with this ambassador thing? How would people judge the one that we represent? Ambassadors, I tell you, they've got to be careful. I remember, and I remember it was in January 1991, because my son was born that week, when the United States uh, desert storm and went into Kuwait. And prior to that, there was an ambassador in Iraq, and as later history would come out, she, and she was called back, but she conveyed the message to Saddam Hussein that the United States, this is before they invaded, but that, that the ambassador conveyed to Saddam Hussein that the United States isn't really going to take military action. And so you know what he did? He invaded Kuwait. Figured, hey, the United States isn't going to do anything. Let's do it. Well, you know what? She gave a wrong message. And it was a costly message. We are Christ's ambassadors. And notice the words, if you could go back to that one slide. In your version, it implies it here in the New Living. But but do you see, uh, your version might speak and use words pleading and imploring. Do you see the sense of urgency Paul is saying here in verse 20? You know, if you just get time sometime, put that on your to-do list, we need to... We need to convey this message. No. Is there an urgency in our world today? Do you sense an urgency in our world, in our culture, in our nation, in our community? Has there been a time in our nation that we desperately need to be ambassadors for Christ, committed to the gospel of Jesus, announcing the good news, come back to God? I, I think there is. And whose responsibility is that? According to the Word of God, that's our responsibility. We are ambassadors for Christ. I read a story about an elderly engineer, and this gentleman had retired from a 40-year-old job, that he, a 40-year job that he'd been out where he was in charge of equipment maintenance, an engineer at a manufacturing plant, and The day came when he was to retire, and they kind of had a little party, had a little cake, and gave him the golden handshake, and there wasn't some magnificent exotic pension plan. He got a little cheap watch as a parting gift, and and he left. He worked there 40 years. And a few months later, after he had been retired for a few months, he received an urgent call from the plant manager that apparently an expensive piece of machinery that was critical to the operations had failed and the production had ceased and the equipment maintenance staff was perplexed at how to repair the problem. Thousands, hundreds, hundreds of thousands of dollars were being lost each day that the production was down. This elderly engineer, recently retired, told the manager he'd be happy to come back and look at the problem and he said, Now, you know, coming back, I'm not coming back as an employee. I'm coming back as a consultant. The manager said, hey, I don't care. Do whatever you need to do to get this thing going. So the engineer arrived on the plant. He does some tests of the machinery, looks it over for about five minutes, and he goes back to the engineering room where they have all the drawings of the machinery up on the wall, and the elderly engineer takes a red Sharpie and puts a red X over a key component in the machinery. 
And he says, you know what? If you fix that, if you replace that part, the machinery will work fine again and production will be moving along as normal. Well, they immediately ordered the part, got it replaced, and sure enough, the production line was humming along just like before. A couple of weeks later, the plant manager received a bill from this retired engineer. Remember, he's now a consultant, and he received a bill for $50,000 in consulting services. The plant manager looked at this bill and was incredulous. He, he said, this guy was only here five minutes looking at the machine and telling us what the problem was, and he wants $50,000, so he calls this elderly engineer on the phone, and he's angry, and, and in a harsh tone, he says, I demand a detailed invoice. A few days later, he got a detailed invoice, and I'm going to read it to you. One red X, $5. Knowing where to put the X, $49,995. You see, knowing the location of the problem and knowing how to solve it, that's the key. God has given us clear instruction and knowledge of the problem. A lot of people say we got problems, and we do. But knowing where to put the mark. And God hasn't given us an X to put. He's given us a cross to put on the problem that our generation faces, and should the Lord tarry, our children and grandchildren will face. Because sin and rebellion will only live and have breath as long until Jesus returns as King of kings and Lord of lords. Real peace, real lasting peace, real harmony only comes when Jesus Christ sets his feet on the soil of the Mount of Olives and rules and reigns forever. Let's pray.